All right, if you have a copy of the confession, let's go ahead and go to chapter 15 once again. And we're in the last paragraph of chapter number 15 of the chapter dealing with of repentance unto life and salvation. And uh, where we were for our scripture reading, you can just keep your place there. Uh, We will be making reference back to that particular text uh, as that is one of the key uh, footnotes there in paragraph number five. As we look at the confession this morning, let's look at this together. Paragraph five says, such is the provision which God hath made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation, that although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. I want to deal this morning with the subject of the preaching of repentance. The preaching of repentance. The confession here in chapter 15 completes this uh, examination of repentance with some very pointed uh, searching counsel about the necessity of preaching repentance. Uh, I would tell you that if you were to go and look at the uh, top downloaded sermons worldwide, uh, in many cases you would not find that sermons on repentance are high on the popularity list. But you would find very high downloads for that which makes or gives me a great prosperous life now. Repentance is not a popular subject. The preaching of repentance is especially an unpopular subject, although it should be one of the very foremost subjects of our preaching. Uh, Why is it necessary to preach constantly about repentance? Because it's all in light of what we've learned about sin. Uh, If we have learned over these few weeks that sin is still present in the believer, and that repentance is not a one-time-and-done proposition, then we know that repentance needs to be constantly preached, and we need to be reminded of the necessary need for repentance. So there is this principle here at the end of that paragraph that said it makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. Uh, You'll remember that as we started this study in chapter 15, we looked at how every sin is grievous unto God. Uh, God does not categorize sin by putting it in a category that says this sin is not so bad, Uh, this sin is so small as compared to the other ones. Uh, Every single sin is grievous and an abomination to God. Uh, Therefore, uh, it is man who perceives the smallness of his sin, uh, not God. Uh, Man will convince himself by comparing himself to other individuals that my sin is small. Uh, He'll continue to tell himself that my sin is not as bad as uh, my spouse's, my sin is not as bad as my children, my co-workers, uh, the people I I am a part of a church. Uh, My repentance or my sin is small, so as a result, my repentance is not necessary. However, we understand that every single sin, no matter how small we perceive it to be, uh, is to be repented of. Uh, The smallest sin that you could perceive in you is enough to damn you and to condemn you to hell for all of eternity. So whatever you think your small sin is, that sin alone, if that's all you ever did wrong, that would condemn you to hell. 
So there is no small sin. There is nothing that would say, I don't have to worry about that. But the glorious truth is, is that God is willing to forgive even that perceived small sin uh, that man uh, determines is not so large. Uh, God is willing to forgive. I love that. God is willing to forgive. Uh, God is merciful. God is gracious. Uh, God is willing to uh, forgive us. And that is the hope of the sinner today. Uh, That is where our hope lies is knowing that, yes, even the smallest of my sins should condemn me to hell forever. But out of God's marvelous and glorious and undeserved grace, uh, now I am able to stand before him uh, robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we should be preaching repentance Uh, Not only constantly, but we should be preaching it freely. That is really what paragraph 5 in a synopsis is teaching. That it is important to continue to preach repentance uh, on a constant basis. There's never a point in this side of glory where we can say, now it's safe to stop preaching on repentance. It should be the subject uh, of preaching should be repentance. We know that the very first words out of John the Baptist's mouth for his preaching ministry was the word repent. The very first words out of the Lord Jesus Christ's preaching ministry was the word repent. That's where it began, and that's where all preaching really begins because of man's sin. So first of all, I think we've already made this point, but we should uh, never treat a sin so small Uh, that we think it does not deserve damnation. Uh, Be careful about categorizing your sin to a place where it seems small to you. Uh, The smallness of man's perception uh, is what leads man to have a small view of his sin. Uh, Our perception is faulty. Um, Sometimes people uh, will make a comment about another person. Well, that's a very perceptive person. Perception is not always reality. Perception is not always right. Just because you perceive something in me or you perceive something in yourself doesn't make it right because even your perceptions are bathed in, in infallibility. You're a fallible human being. I'm a fallible human being, which means my perceptions can be wrong. I know for a fact I perceive things wrong. I can tell you for a fact I make wrong assumptions often. But how many times do assumptions become fact in our mind? We begin to think, well, it must be because I think that way. I feel that way. I perceive it. So it must be. Well, that's the, that's the deadliness of sin. Uh, sin begets, gets into us and is part of us, and we are, begin to rationalize away our sin. Uh, one of the other uh, footnotes there is Romans 6.23, which I think is very familiar uh, to most all of us. It reminds us, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, that sin could be that little sin. Uh, we, it's not for the wages of a giant, uh, earth-shattering public sin is death. Sin is death. The smallest sin you perceive in you without Jesus Christ is condemning. So we understand that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Notice he, Paul did not say a gift of God is eternal life. He says it is the gift of God, and the gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So every single sin brings death. So in this sense, no sin should be considered small because it brings condemnation. 
We know from the scripture that to be guilty of breaking the law in one part is to be guilty of breaking the entire law. Uh, we are, we are become, have become very divided in our churches by determining what we perceive should be the law and what should be enforced. And churches have now decided that there are certain aspects of uh, what we can now say. It's okay to do that, but God's law has always been God's law. God's law has not been changed. It's not been watered down. Now, the ceremonial law has had some change, but the moral law of God has never changed. What was God's morality a thousand years ago is still God's morality today. He has not changed it. Now, sadly, the contemporary church of all denominations has decided to change the law of God and change it into something that's a a little more acceptable. Folks, what starts to happen is if we begin to change the law of God, we begin to change our perception of our own sin, and as our sin is perceived to be smaller than it is, that's what leads to the fallacy, I don't need to repent. The problem is not with God, the problem is with man. God has never been the problem. God has never been the problem. You and I are the problem. Our perception is the problem. We, we really don't realize what total depravity actually means. We, we don't realize that that means it, sin has infiltrated every part of you. Now, of course, you are not as bad as you could possibly be, but you are sin from the, foot, from the soles of your feet to the crown of your head. There is not a part of you that has not had sin infiltrated into it, even the mind. So as brilliant as we think we are, as studious as we think we are, you could graduate with a Bible degree, a seminary degree, get your PhD, have people call you doctor, and still perceive your sin wrong. The Pharisees were the religious leaders and experts of the day, and they completely ignored the reality of their own sin. So we understand that to to stumble in any part of the law is to be considered a lawbreaker. When we looked at uh, Psalm 51, whether this was last week or the week before, I can't remember, we looked at Psalm 51 as that David crying out for forgiveness. And remember, he was crying out for forgiveness because of his sin with Bathsheba. But his request was a, it was a comprehensive request. He asked to be cleansed. He asked to be washed. But he's also very concerned about his particular sins, which is what we looked at last week. There are particular sins that we need to repent of. Now, those particular sins may vary from person to person. God cleansing is for even particular sins, not just sin in general. David knew something in Psalm 51, and I hope we get this point. David knew that one sin left unrepented of or one sin that I'm left uncleansed of leads to a situation where it is now fatal for me. I do do not have anything to stand on. If, If God leaves me with any sin, I will never be able to stand before the judge. I will never be able to stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, I realize this side of heaven, I'm going to have sin. I'm going to continue to sin. Again, why there should be a constant emphasis on the preaching of repentance. All this means is that every time we look at any person, 
We are looking at someone, whether they perceive themselves to be or not, we're looking at a lawbreaker. Now, you today may say, I'm not a lawbreaker. And you may have convinced yourself you're not a lawbreaker. You may have convinced yourself uh, even uh, like the rich young ruler who, who said to the Lord Jesus himself, he said, all of these things, this is startling, I have kept all of these things from my youth up. He's standing before the Lord Jesus Christ and he, with almost boastful pride, says, all of those things you're telling me to do, I've done that from my youth up. Now that's quite a stretch because none of us have kept everything from our youth, nor are we capable of keeping all the commands of God from our youth. This means that every time we look at ourselves, we are looking at someone who has broken the law. That means as lawbreakers, apart from Jesus Christ, we are looking at a very fearful and just punishment by a holy God. God must punish sin. He's not ever ignored sin. He's not going to ignore it. He's not going to look at something and say, I can ignore that one. God punishes sin. So secondly, even though we should not underestimate sin, we also do not under, underestimate the Christ who saves you from sin. Don't underestimate Christ. And you say, how could we possibly do that? Well, there are people that wonder what is the great praise and what is the great cause of our greatest source of thanksgiving today? Your greatest praise. If someone says, what's the greatest thing you can say about what Jesus Christ has done for you? The response to you, to that person is, he forgave me of my sin. Not he gave me a great house or he gave me a great life. He forgave my sins. To underestimate Christ is to underestimate what the saving, cleansing power of Christ really actually means. To have your sins forgiven means you can one day stand before God and be looked upon as totally, perfectly righteous. Yet knowing today that this provision that God the Father has made through Christ in that covenant of grace is part of the preservation of believers unto salvation. Notice again there in paragraph 5, it says, Such is the provision which God hath made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation. Everything that is being done is for the preservation of the believers. To underestimate Christ would be to say this, My sin is so great that even Jesus Christ can't forgive me for that one. That's to underestimate Christ. There is no sin that you're guilty of right this moment that you cannot be forgiven of. The only thing that keeps us that is underestimating what Christ really means by cleansing us from all sin and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Christ is sufficient to wash away even the deepest stain of sin, of iniquity, of transgression. It can make what we've heard throughout our Christian sayings all of our life, His blood can even make the foulest clean. That command to repent and believe the gospel is the provision 
And as we read there in Isaiah 1.18, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be made white as snow through the blood of the Lamb. Though our sins are red like crimson, they shall be as pure new wool. Every person that the Lord has set his love upon have been provided the atoning blood of Christ. If you are in the body of Christ today, do not underestimate that glorious privilege. The fact today that you can sit here and be in agreement with having your sins forgiven and to know with certainty that to step out of this life into eternity guarantees you that you'll be present with the Lord. Don't underestimate what that means. Because you have no other guarantees in this life that even rise anywhere near that pinnacle. You have no guarantee of the next 30 seconds. But you do have the guarantee through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through the repentance, the gift of repentance, and the belief in the gospel that there is a 100% certainty nothing can stand in the way of your presence with Jesus Christ upon your death. It takes away the fear of death. It takes away the fear of where am I going to stand after I die. He truly has made a propitiation for his people. And by the way, knowing that glorious truth, never, as the Apostle Paul would say a lot more eloquently than I would say, uh, that never gives us the ground to think that we can sin and be exempted from punishment. The great motivation of a holy life is the desire to flee from sin. See, we've, we have turned the holy life into a list of standards and have not really emphasized what a holy life really is. It's the mortifying of the flesh. You can, you can clean up the outside and the inside be filthy and disgusting. You can clean the outside of the cup and the inside is covered in dirt. You can clean up the dead body as you put it into a coffin, but it's still dead. It's that, that uh, old saying that when there's old viewings that people go to and they, they see that person and they say, don't they look good? Uh, they're dead. They're, but if they're dead and they are in Christ... I would rather emphasize what they are now standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that shell is just a shell. They're not there anymore. But what hope would you have if you did not have hope in Christ? You have no hope at all. Thirdly, this morning, we should be very clear in our minds and in our hearts and also in our preaching about the certainty of forgiveness where true repentance is actually demonstrated. In other words, repentance is not a, I hope this works. I hope I repented rightly. I hope I said the right words. Some of you, by your own admission, have struggled over the years, even about your salvation, as to, did I say the right things? Did I do the right steps? Did I walk the aisle at the right moment? Am I doing this for the right reasons? True repentance is never turned away. 
True repentance of my sin is never turned away. But how, what is true repentance actually, what must it begin with? For true repentance to actually be right, it has to begin with a comprehension, and I would also say an apprehension, of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. When I am brought to repentance, if I do not comprehend the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, I am probably repenting under false motives or false assumptions or false pretenses. If I'm just simply sorry for my sin, but I'm not apprehending the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, am I truly repenting of that sin? The truth is, is that as we preach repentance that is biblical, biblical repentance is always founded on a true apprehension of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. We saw some examples a couple weeks ago about people that were sorry. We saw examples of people that were sorrowful for what they had done. Judas Iscariot was sorrowful, but he was never brought to repentance. He never truly apprehended the mercy of God through Christ. And yet, David in Psalm 51 fully apprehended the mercy that was being extended to him. Remember, mercy is not an obligation of God. God is not obligated to do anything with regard to mercy for you. When we use terminologies, well, God must do this. God must show me mercy. If I do this, God must show me mercy. God is not obligated. If mercy becomes an obligation, it's no longer mercy. Truthfully, mercy is something that none of us actually deserve. And if we begin to lose sight of that, we lose sight of the reality of apprehending the mercy of God, uh, we will... Under, we will fail to understand what true repentance is and what the true results of repentance is, which is forgiveness. We understand in Romans 8, verse 30, that God predestines, God calls, which is that sovereign, effectual call. And we understand that those whom he calls, they are invariably justified. There's no argument with that. God's effectual calling results and works in a newness of life. And in that, faith and repentance is given into the heart of man. And understand, even our repentance does not obligate God to forgive us. True repentance, true repentance is something that is directly a gift of God. We don't call on men when we preach or call on people in our preaching to actually even truly know that they're regenerate. What we're truly understanding is before a person really comes to the understanding of what they are, they don't even get to that point until repentance comes. Then they realize, I'm in, a re I'm in an unregenerate position. See, we've put the cart before the horse. We have said that a dead man can figure all these things out before God does a work in him. How can an unregenerate man apprehend or comprehend the mercy of God through Christ? Nobody's ever able to answer that question. How does an unregenerate man who still has the old nature only, how can that individual 
even begin to comprehend and apprehend the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Yet in a lot of our churches, and for the last 100 years or maybe more, churches have been calling people to apprehend something that an unregenerate man cannot possibly do. It's like telling the dead man in the coffin to get up, rise himself from the coffin. It's never happened. That dead man cannot generate new life in himself. An unregenerate man cannot generate new life by now suddenly coming to himself and saying, I have an apprehension of the mercy of God through Christ. It is only after that man has been granted that gift of repentance and belief in the gospel, then he comes at a realization of what his spiritual condition really was. I was an unregenerate, unconverted sinner, deserving and still deserving, and on my way to hell. We spin our wheels trying to convince a man of his unregenerate state until God does a work in that man's heart. That man or woman will never fully understand their position before God. God has never nor ever will need your eloquence. He's not, he's not depending upon how you say it. So the preaching of repentance is not trying to find clever ways to frame it, to make people more uh, intellectual about what repentance is. It is the command of God to preach repentance and belief. But it's not the preacher's job nor your job to regenerate the soul your own or other people, because you can't do it. Now again, are we to preach? Absolutely. We are to call men and women to the gospel. But it is God who we trust in to work salvation by not ignoring the predestinating, the calling, the invariable invariable justification that's coming Preaching is not about calling men to know they're regenerate. It's calling them to acknowledge. And God, as He works in His sovereign grace, it is He who does the opening of the eyes and the unstopping of the ears. To put it concisely, in order for a man to be saved, and this is the position we take at this church and we take it unapologetically. Somebody says, if they say, how is a person, how must people be saved? They must repent and believe. You are not going to hear us say, you must ask Jesus into your heart. That is not part of the gospel presentation at all. It is repent and believe. It's not even, do you acknowledge you're a sinner? It is repent and believe. That's what makes the preaching constantly of repentance absolutely necessary. As we kind of bring this to a conclusion this morning, let's just review this quickly and understand these few last points. Uh, If you didn't get them the first time, first of all, no sin no matter how small it seems to be, is exempt from eternal damnation. The Bible teaches us we are all, all sins render us guilty. We are deserving of judgment for every sin, even the smallest perceived sin in our heart. But we also have the promise that 
no matter how serious our sin, no matter how deep our iniquity, all who repent, no matter how deep those sins are, will find forgiveness and mercy through Jesus Christ. Christ has never turned away any who truly came unto Him. The whole false accusation about the doctrine of election, and I hope we all understand this, is that God is turning away people who want Him. That is not true. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? That's very, very important. That's what you, as Reformed Baptists, are being accused of. I just want you to know what you're being accused of. The accusation against you is you are people who believe that Jesus turns away people who want Him. He's never done any such thing. He's never turned away any that came unto Him in repentance and belief, and He said, you know what? You don't have a mark on your back, so I'm going to have to tell you no. That's a complete perversion and corruption of the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election should be one of the most beautiful doctrines you hear because you realize as an unregenerate man, I could not do what God has done for me. And I'm left speechless because I can take no glory for myself. Try to go through the files of your mind who truly understand the doctrine of election and point out one thing that you've done to make that election happen or to keep it. You have nothing. I could give you that assignment and say, spend the next, spend the next year trying to figure that out. You won't find anything. Because there is nothing in you and I that even was a part of that. But yet, how may, how may a person know if they're one of God's elect? Repent and believe the gospel. If you repent and believe the gospel, guess what? You're one of God's elect. See, people want to split hairs over this thing, and they would say, well, I'd rather be responsible for my own choice. <laughs> I don't think you realize biblically what you're saying. Because if a dead man cannot make himself alive, how do you ever come to the realization you need to make a choice for God? Unless you are somehow outside of the boundaries of Scripture and you're the special provision. Oh, you, got a, you have special treatment here. You don't have to come into the same boundaries in which God has set. No, this glorious truth that no matter what a person has done. Now, this may be hard for us because we see there are people who are guilty of sins who we say uh, that person cannot possibly ever be saved. We've all said it. That person cannot ever possibly be saved. Now, we also know there are a lot of people in our circles who are frightened and scared to death of the unpardonable sin. And if there's anything that has been so abused and so corrupted, it's what the unpardonable sin is. People have said the unpardonable sin is murder, the unpardonable sin is adultery, the unpardonable sin is homosexuality, the unpardonable sin is abortion. They've all decided this is what the unpardonable sin is. However, we understand that biblically speaking, the unpardonable sin is a very specific sin. I want you to listen carefully because I want us to set this in our mind and settle this. The unpardonable sins are not those other things we just said. The unpardonable sin is a deliberate, malicious, continual, willful rejection of the testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning Christ. It is to, to give credit to Satan 
for the things in which Jesus Christ through the Spirit has done. It's to give Satan credit for the glorious works that God through the Spirit is doing. Some people I know have lived in such fear of the unpardonable sin for decades. Decades. And if you go and you read Matthew 12 and you study that out about the unpardonable sin, what Jesus is saying, it is so clear what the unpardonable sin truly is. A deliberate rejection such as this is someone who is by their own, and this is where it gets confusing, by their own choice, they are hardening themselves and hardening themselves even further towards the things of God. God is sovereign, man is still responsible. That person who willfully, maliciously, deliberately, and continually neglects and rejects the testimony of the Holy Spirit, that person in that state would never even consider repentance. Nor would they even seek it. The sinner outside of Christ does not get up on Monday morning and say, I'm going to seek repentance today. I've decided that this Monday morning I'm going to do something I haven't done. I'm going to seek God today. Yet biblically, they've said there's none righteous. There's no, not one. How do you break the mold? How are you the one who sought God on your own by Him not doing the work first? It's an impossibility. A person who's committed this unpardonable sin does not want repentance. They're not seeking after any repentance. In other words, if someone desires salvation and wants to turn away from their sins to Christ, they by definition have not committed the unforgivable sin and can be sure they will find mercy. The very fact that a person is desiring salvation and wants to turn away from their sins to Christ is the very definition that you cannot be guilty of the unpardonable sin. <laughs> that's, that's the beauty of who Christ really is. But please, and I don't mean this in an angry way, but it does anger me. Don't accuse my Lord of ever turning away someone who wants Him. That's the most offensive thing you can say to a believer is that you serve a God who turns people who want Him away. He has never done any such thing. That's the beauty of grace. True biblical grace. Biblical grace is not God did His half, you do the other half. I did my part, I'll meet you halfway. Sinner, you meet me in the middle. And if we meet together, then you can have salvation. Salvation is 100% of the Lord. Which leaves me in a state where I cannot take credit for anything. And finally, repentance is a doctrine that must be regularly preached. Notice again, Mark 1.15, it's noted that Christ preached repentance. Acts 2, verses 37 through 38. Acts 3, verse 19. Acts 20, 21. The apostles preached repentance. 
I would be very frightened of a minister, a person who claims to be a minister of the gospel who never preaches on repentance. I'd be frightened. Folks, part of what we're doing is trying to remind us and bring us right back to the reality of who God really is. And without an understanding of God, without an apprehension and a comprehension of the mercy of God through Christ, we would be people most miserable. Not by accident, I believe that the confession writers knew what they were doing. Next week, we will jump right into chapter 16 that deal with uh, good works. And probably um, the, one of the single most uh, confusion as to what the purpose of works are, um, people confuse them as being part of their salvation. They confuse them with being part of their keeping their salvation when in fact good works biblically is something entirely different than that. So we will pick up uh, chapter 16 next week. So if you want to read ahead, uh, we won't get any further than paragraph one. So if you want to study that, meditate upon it, uh, I would advise you just look at that, look at the footnotes, study the passages that go along with it, and uh, we'll take some time uh, next week to look at that. Uh, We've got just a few minutes. Uh, Anybody have any comments or questions this morning about the lesson today? Anything that's standing out to you? Something that we want to ask about or comment about? Jacob, you have something today? Page of your Bible? Yeah. Yeah. Is it from a is it from a lesson this week? A picture? What is it? (laughs) What's the picture of? Picture of 